إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يذلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد So has everybody revised what we've done so far? If, if a dog comes and licks one of your cups or your utensils, what do you have to do? You can mix the soil with the water as well. And what about uh, a cat? If a cat comes and licks your drink or your water or your cups or something? So is it impure or not? No. Mm. So it's not impure, it's okay. What's the evidence? How do you know it's not impure? What if somebody comes to you and says, no, you're not right, you're wrong? Because what evidence are you going to give to them? You remember? Abu Qatada, the hadith of Abu Qatada. Hadith of Abu Qatada, what happened? So Abu Qatada allowed the cat to drink the water, it even helped the cat to drink the water. Hmm. So Abu Qatada then told her that the Prophet ﷺ had said that the cats, they are min tawafina alaykum, that the cats, they always are amongst you. They are amongst you all the time in your homes and in your gardens, in the streets. They're everywhere. So they are not impure. The cats are not impure. So that was uh, with regards to the cats and the dogs in the last lesson. Now in the next lesson, we have hadith number 12. وَعَنْ أَنَسِ بْنِ مَالِكَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالْ جَاءَ عَرَابِيٌّ فَبَالَ فِي طَائِفَةِ الْمَسْجِدِ فَزَجَرَهُ النَّاسِ فَنَهَاهُمُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم فَلَمَّا قَضَى بَوْلَهُ أَمَرَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم بِذَنُوبٍ مِمَّا فَأُهْرِيقَ عَلَيْهِ مُتَّفَقٌ عَلَيْهِ وعن ابن عمر رضي الله عنهما قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وحلت لنا ميتتان ودمان فأما الميتتان فالجراد والحوت وأما الدمان فالكبد والطحال أخرجه أحمد وابن ماجا وفيه ضعف these two hadith, now the first of them is the hadith of Anas ibn Malik, radiallahu anhu. Anas ibn Malik, as you know, was the servant of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he served the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, from the moment or from the early days when he arrived in Medina. Uh, and at that time, Anas ibn Malik in the early days was very young. He was only approximately 10 years old. He was only approximately 10 years old at that time when he began serving the Prophet ﷺ. And when he died, Anas ibn Malik was how old? He, over 100 years old. He was over 100 years old when he died, Anas ibn Malik. So in this hadith he says, Ja'a Arabiyun that an A'rabi. A'rabi 
is an individual that lives out in the open, lives out in the deserts, or lives out outside of society, the built-up society, outside of the cities and the towns. He lives outside in the desert or lives outside somewhere isolated. Those are the types of people that are known as Al-Arabi. That is a person who lives out in the Badia, out in like the isolated areas, the desert, etc. Even if he was Arab or non-Arab, they're all called Arabi. Arabi doesn't mean he has to be Arab. Arab or non-Arab. As long as they live out in these isolated areas, in the deserts, etc. These travelers, they're like travelers. Wherever they can find water, then they go to that area and they live there for a while. Then they go elsewhere, they follow the water wherever the water is and they travel around in that way. So they do not live in the built-up societies of cities and towns. They live outside of that and they are isolated. And that's what's known as Al-A'rab. So this Arabi, he came to the, he came to the masjid of the Prophet And he didn't know. He didn't know, so he ended up urinating in the corner of the masjid. He ended up urinating in the corner of the masjid. فَبَالَ فِي طَائِفَةِ الْمَسْجِدِ He went and he urinated in one corner of the mosque. طَائِفَ يَعْنِي نَاحِيَ نَاحِيَ مِنَ الْمَسْجِدِ He went and urinated in one side of the mosque, one corner of the mosque. فَزَجَرَهُ النَّاسِ so when the companions saw him do that, when the companions saw this individual urinating in the corner of the mosque, when they saw this, they were obviously displeased by this act. So they reprimanded him. They were, they, they, as you say, to understand easily, they told him off. They reprimanded him. The companions, زجروه, يعني أنكروا عليه بشدة i.e. they rejected that affair firmly, i.e. they told him off very strongly, that this is wrong and you can't do this, they told him off very strongly, they rejected that act and they reprimanded him in a firm and severe manner, they told him off in a severe manner, وَهَمُّوا أَنْ يُوقِعُوا بِهِ لِأَنَّهُ فَعَلَ مُنْكَرًا and they, it's as if they wanted to uh, almost bring him down, to take him down, as a consequence of this action, this evil action that they saw from him, urinating in the mosque. So they were very angered by this action of his. And they reprimanded him severely, they told him off severely and very hard for what he was doing, urinating in the masjid. However, the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw this, he stopped them. He said to the companions, do not do that. Do not tell him off in this severe way and this hard way. He prohibited them from doing that. Instead, the Prophet ﷺ said, Da'uhu. He said to the companions, Leave him. The Prophet ﷺ, he said to the companions, No, leave him. Yani da'uhu yukammil bawlahu. I.e., the Prophet ﷺ meant, Leave him to finish urinating. Allow him, let him, let him finish urinating. Uh, and in one narration, وَفِي رِوَايَةِ وَلَا لَا تَزْرِمُوهُ يَعْنِي لَا تَقْطَعُ عَلَيْهِ بَوْلَهُ In one narration, the Prophet said to them, لَا تَزْرِمُوهُ i.e. do not cut him off in urinating. Don't disturb him whilst he's urinating. Allow him to finish. 
The Prophet said to them, allow him to finish. So, the companions, they let him. They left him until he finished urinating. They allowed him to do it. They let him to finish his urine. So when that individual finished his urine, the Prophet ﷺ, he commanded that the people should bring a bucket of water. It's like a, like a bucket full of water. So the Prophet ﷺ, he told them, once he had finished urinating, he said to the companions, bring a bucket full of water. So when they did that, they bought the bucket full of water. Then after that, it says in the narration, فَأُهْرِيقَ عَلَيْهِ فَأُهْرِيقَ عَلَيْهِ Then they poured the water over the area where he had been urinating. They poured the water over the area where, they, where he had been urinating. So now in this hadith, which is muttafaqun alayhi in Bukhari and Muslim, to summarize it, you have this Arabi, this individual who comes from outside of the society, from the isolated areas, from the deserts, and sometimes they have characteristics that are a little bit harsh, you might think. Their characteristics are a little bit harsh, and their uh, methodology and their way of behavior is a little bit different to how people behave who live, who live in cities and societies. So this Arabi, he came, and he ended up urinating in a corner of the masjid. When the companion saw him, obviously this was something disgusting to them. It was something which was munkar, something disliked and evil. So they reprimanded him and they told him off severely. But the Prophet ﷺ said, leave him. Don't do that. Leave him and let him finish. So the companions, they let him finish. When he finished, then the Prophet ﷺ commanded them to bring a bucket full of water. So they did that. And then he commanded them to pour the water over the area where he had been urinating. That's the hadith which is in Bukhari, a Muslim. But what's the meaning of this hadith, and what's the fiqh to be derived from this hadith? Firstly, the shaykh says, Al-mas'ala al-ula. Fihi dalilun ala najasat bawl al-adami. There is an evidence in this hadith that the urine of humans, it is impure. There is an evidence in this hadith that the urine of humans is impure. وَهَذَا مَحَلُّ إِجْمَاعٍ بَيْنَ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ And this is something which is agreed upon consensus of the people of knowledge that the urine of the humans is impure. وَأَنَّهُ يَجِبُ تَطْهِيرُ مَا أَصَابَهُ مِنْ ثَوْبٍ أَوْ بَدَلٍ أَوْ بُقْعَةٍ And that it is obligatory to purify any area that has been afflicted by urine, any area where urine has fallen onto it, whether it's your clothes, or whether it's the ground, or whether it's any other area where urine has fallen onto it, then you must purify it. That's the first thing which this hadith indicates, clearly. Because when the man finished, the Prophet said what? He commanded that they pour water over it, to purify it. So it is consensus of the scholars that urine is impure. المسألة الثانية فيه دليل على كيفية تطهير الأرض إذا أصابتها النجاسة The point of this hadith now is that it tells you 
how to purify the ground if the ground becomes impure. In the last hadith, we were talking about what? We were talking about cups and utensils if they become impure by the, uh, the saliva of the dog or the licking of the dog and those types of things. Here, we're talking about the impurity if it's on the ground somewhere. How do you remove the impurity or make the ground pure again if there is impurity on it? There's some urine or feces or something. This hadith tells you what to do. وَذَلِكَ بِأَنْ يُصَبَّ عَلَيْهَا الْمَاءِ وَتَكَاثُرْ بِالْمَاءِ And that is, that if the ground has some impurity on it, the way to remove that is by using water, by pouring water over it. If there is impurity upon the ground, then you pour water upon it plentifully. Plenty of water on it, وَيَكُونُ هَذَا مُطَهِّرًا لَهَا And if you pour this water onto it, plenty of water, then that impurity, once it's removed by this water, you pour lots of water, and that urine, it's finished. All the water pours and pours, and the urine disappears, then that's it, the ground has become pure now. That impurity has been washed away by the water. It's been purified by the water. So the way to purify the ground if it becomes impure is to pour plentiful water upon it. وَكَذَلِكَ مَتَّصَلَ بِالْأَرْضِ مِمَّا ثَبُتَ فِيهَا مِنَ الْحِيَاضِ الثَّابِتَ الْمُتَّصِلَ بِالْأَرْضَ فَإِذَا تَنَجَّسَتْ فَحُكْمُهَا حُكْمُ الْأَرْضِ أَنْ يُصَبَّ عَلَيْهَا مَا يُطَهِّرُهَا And similarly other things that are attached to the earth. Other things that might be attached to the ground. For example, uh, blood, certain types of blood from the women, etc. If that becomes attached to the ground, then again you pour plentiful water upon it until that is removed. وَظَاهِرُ الْحَدِيثِ أَنَّهُ لَا فَرْقَ بَيْنَ الْأَرْضِ الصَّلْبَ وَالْأَرْضِ الرَّخْوَى and the hadith indicates that there is no difference between the ground if it is hard, if it is solid ground, or if it is soft, moist ground. Whether it is solid, hard ground, or if it is soft, moist ground, the hadith indicates that there is no difference between the two of them. That if it is ground on the floor, then to purify it, you pour the water on it. Whether it is solid ground, or it is ground that is soft and moist. Then the Shaykh says, Well, Ma'roof, and Masjid and Nabi Sallallahu Kana Rahwan. And it is known that the Masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu it was soft and moist, the ground. It wasn't solid ground, it wasn't rocks. It was sand and other things which were like softer and moister. Moisture can go into them, water can go into them. It was softer ground. It was soft type of ground. The ground uh, of the masjid of the Prophet Wasallam. And the hadith, it is actually about the mosque of the Prophet Wasallam. This hadith is about the mosque of the Prophet Wasallam. So therefore, it would indicate that even if it is soft ground or hard ground, if there is some impurity upon it, the way to remove it is to uh, pour plentiful water onto that area.
Then the Sheikh says, Ammal Arda Saliba Kama Ida Kanat Min Hijara Mathalan As for solid ground, for example, if it was made out of rocks and stones, Fabadul Ulama Yara Then some of the scholars they consider their opinion is that on solid ground, if there is some impurity on it, then just pouring water over it isn't enough. If it is solid ground. In soft ground that can seep in the water, then they say just pour the water and it's enough. But solid ground, they say pouring the water isn't enough. They say if it is solid ground, you must pour the water and also wash it, clean it. You must also wash it properly. Not just pour the water on it with a bucket but you must actually clean it and wash it if it is solid ground. Why? Because if it is solid ground, rocks and stones, when you pour the water, will the water go into the ground or not? It won't. If it is solid ground, the water will not seep into the ground. So for that reason they say that it is not sufficient just to pour the water. You have to actually wash that area. But with soft ground, if there is some impurity on it, you pour the water, the water pours into the ground, the impurity goes away, everything seeps away, and it goes. But with solid ground, the water does not seep into the ground. So there, some of the scholars, some of the scholars, they said you must properly clean it as well, not just pour the water over it. However, uh, the hadith does not indicate this specification. The hadith seems to be general, لكن ظاهر الحديث أنه يكفي يكفي أن يصب عليها الماء مرة واحدة ويكون هذا الماء ماء كثيرا بالنسبة للبول ولا تحتاج الأرض إلى أخذ التربة بعد ذلك أو قبل الغسل ولا تحتاج إلى أن تحوط أيضا فبعض الناس يحوط مكان البول وهذا ليس أمرا مطلوبا So the Sheikh said that the hadith is general whether it is soft ground that can seep in the water and moisture it's moist ground or if it is solid ground, you pour the water on it because the hadith is general. And there is no specification that you need to clean it or that you need to make some sort of boundary around the area. Instead, all you need to do is, if there is some urine on the ground, then you have water, which is obviously a lot more than the urine. If you have urine of a small amount, then you have water which is a lot more than the urine. So the water will overcome the urine and it will clean it all out. Not if you have a big amount of urine and only a small amount of water, that won't clean it. But if you have some urine or some other impurity, as long as the water is more, it is plentiful more than the actual impurity. So that when you pour it on, the water gushes onto it, it flows onto that impurity and it cleans it away. And that is sufficient, and that's what the hadith indicates. Al-Mas'ala al-Thalitha Fil-Hadith Dalilun ala ihtiram al-Masajid the third issue is that there is an evidence in the hadith about respecting the mosques. There is a clear evidence in this hadith about respecting the mosques, the masajid. Because the companions, when they saw him urinating, they went and they rebuked him and they, uh, they uh, reprimanded him and they told him off severely because of what they saw him doing, urinating in the masjid. And they knew that this is not something good and not allowed. You have to have respect and honor for the masjid. When Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, لَمْ يَمْنَعْهُمْ مِنَ الْإِنْكَارِ 
وَإِنَّمَا مَنَعَهُمْ مِنَ الطَّرِيقَةِ فَقَطْ And the Prophet remember we said that he told them to stop and not to tell him off. But that wasn't because the Prophet was telling them that it was wrong to tell him off. To tell that person off and to tell him to stop that, that was correct. But it was the way that the companions, they did it. It was the way the companions did it, the, the way that they did it, that, that is what the Prophet was telling them, don't do it that way. But the actual rejection of that act is correct. Of course he shouldn't be urinating in the masjid. And of course that is munkar. The Prophet wasn't denying that. Of course that is wrong. But it was the way the companions uh, uh, dealt with that issue that the Prophet told them to not do it that way. فَقَدْ أَقَرَّهُمْ عَلَى الْإِنْكَارِ The Prophet actually agreed with the companions about rejecting this act and tell, and, uh, 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 because the act was wrong to urinate in the masjid. وَمَنَعَهُمْ مِنَ الشِّدَّ عَلَيْهِ But he stopped them and prohibited them from being severe upon that man. وَكَذَلِكَ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَقَالَ لَهُ It is also authentic in one narration that the Prophet called him and said to him, إِنَّ هَذِهِ الْمَسَاجِذَ لَا تَصْلُحُ لِشَيْءٍ مِّنْ هَذَا الْبَوْلِ وَلَا الْقَذْرِ إِنَّمَا هِيَ لِذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَالصَّلَاةِ وَقِرَاءَةِ الْقُرْآنِ In Sahih Muslim, the Prophet said to him that these mosques, they are not uh, suitable for uh, urine or for any other type of impurity and feces etc stool, urine in, uh, impurities of this nature these mosques are not suitable for that type of thing those types of things should not be in the mosques and instead actually the mosques are for the remembrance of Allah and the prayer and the recitation of the Quran so in one narration it is established that the Prophet ﷺ told that man that urinating in the masjid, it's not correct. The masjid is for recitation of the Qur'an and prayer and the remembrance of Allah. So rejecting that act, that was okay, that's correct. Even the Prophet ﷺ rejected that act. But it was the way the companions did it, that the Prophet ﷺ uh, uh, stopped them from. Why? Why did the Prophet ﷺ stop them from refuting that individual and rejecting what he was doing the way that they did it where they went to him away and they started to refute him and to rebuke him and to reprimand him and to tell him off that's what the sheikh mentions next al-mas'ala al-rabi'ah fi al-hadith dalilun ala rifki bil-jahil li-anna al-nabiya s.a.w. ankara ala sahabati zajrahum lil-arabi wa'allamahu bi-rifqin walin إذ إنه لم يقع في هذا المحظور متعمدا إنما كان جاهلا للحكم شرعي لذا كانت معاملته بخلاف المتعمد والمعاند فهذا له معاملة أخرى تليق به The Sheikh says that in the hadith there is an evidence that a person who is ignorant of something a person who is ignorant of something he doesn't know something a particular person he doesn't know something is wrong. Just like this person who urinated in the mosque, did he know that that isn't allowed? He didn't know. He was out living from the desert and things, he didn't know that it wasn't allowed. He thought he could go to the corner of the mosque and urinate, he didn't know. So the Shaykh says, Shaykh Saleh al-Fawzan, that the hadith indicates that you have to be gentle with somebody, or you should be gentle with someone, 
who makes a mistake because of uh, the fact that they don't know. Sometimes somebody might do something wrong, they might do something which is against the sunnah, they might do something which is not right, but because they don't know, they haven't learnt it yet. So you shouldn't be too harsh on them and say, no, you're wrong and you're supposed to be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be harsh on somebody like that, especially if they are from the brothers from amongst you who are trying to practice Salafiyyah, Sunnah wal Jama'ah. If they make a mistake, someone amongst you, one of your brothers, if it's out of ignorance because they don't know, then you should tell them gently and with wisdom, brother, you should be doing this and it's like that. And there's a hadith about this and about that. But not that as soon as you see one of your own brothers and sisters, you see them making some mistakes straight away, you want to tell them off and refute them and give them evidences and you should be doing this and doing that. And not like this and not like that. So this hadith the shaykh says is an evidence for that. That you should be a little bit gentle with somebody who makes a mistake because of ignorance. He just doesn't know. He hasn't learnt it yet. He hasn't got a clue what he's doing is wrong. So explain to him nicely. Say to him, brother, sister, this is wrong what you're doing because the hadith says you should do this or you should do that. You tell them nicely. And that's what the hadith indicates because the Prophet ﷺ, he said to the companions that they should not reject and tell that person off the way that they did. Rather, allow him to finish. Allow him to finish the urine and then after that, uh, then after that, the Prophet ﷺ explained to the individual why it's not allowed and he told the companions to clean that area. So that's something that the Shaykh he mentions. In fact, Shaykh Fawzani says, وَهَذَا أَصْلٌ عَظِيمٌ مِنْ أُصُولِ الدَّعْوَ وَالْأَمْرِ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَالنَّهِي عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ أَنْ يَكُونَ دَاعِيَ لَاللَّهِ وَالْآمِرِ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَالنَّهِي عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ عَلَى جَانِبٍ كَبِيرٍ مِنْ الْحِكْمَةِ وَالْرِفْقِ بِالنَّاسِ وَعَلَيْهِ تَعْلِيمُ الْجُهَالِ دُونَ تَعْنِيفٍ وَلَا شِدَّةٍ وَهَذَا هُوَ الْمَعْرُوفُ مِنْ هَدِيِّ مِنْ هَدِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَقَدْ امْتَثَلَ أَمْرَ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى حَيْثُ قَالَ ادْعُ إِلَى سَبِيلِ رَبِّكَ بِالْحِكْمَةِ وَالْمَوْعِظَةِ الْحَسَنَةِ And the shaykh says this is actually a great principle in the religion. That the person who is enjoining the good and forbidding the evil, the person who is calling the people to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, that you have a degree of wisdom. You need to have some wisdom in doing that. You need to have some insight and patience and wisdom and good manners in behaving with the people when teaching them, and explaining to them what's right and what's wrong. Not that you're someone who's going to be hard on everyone, and start shouting at everyone, and put everybody down and belittle them. That way, then the people won't listen. But rather, one of the principles the Shaykh mentions is somebody who is enjoying the good and forbidding the evil, then you need to have some degree of patience and gentleness and good manners. No doubt you require that, and wisdom. At the same time, yes, of course, Sometimes severity is needed. Sometimes harshness is needed. So harshness in its place is good. And gentleness and kindness in its place is good. So here the shaykh mentions uh, that the person who is a, a da'iyah, he's calling to Allah, he's calling to the religion, he used to have these types of characteristics of patience and wisdom. As Allah said in the Quran, call to the path of your Lord, bilhikmah, with this wisdom and patience. Walmaw'idatil hasana. And with the righteous type of, or the good type of admonition. Then at the end, وَجَادِلُمْ بِالَّتِهِ أَحْسَنْ Also it's mentioned, then debate with them in a manner which is better. So these are some of the characteristics that are mentioned from the hadith also. Then there is another issue. Another issue, which is that one of the conditions of the prayer is that the ground that you pray on must be pure. 
One of the conditions of the prayer is that the ground that you pray on must be pure. How do we know? Because the Prophet told them to pour the water and clean it. Because you have to make it pure. It's part of the masjid. People are going to pray on it. So that is an indication that one of the conditions for the prayer to be correct is that the ground must be pure. Just like your clothes must be pure and your body must be pure. All of those things. Also in the hadith, al-mas'ala al-sabi'a, I think now we're on, في الحديث دليل للقاعدة المشهورة عند العلماء. In this hadith is an evidence for a great principle, a famous principle that the scholars have mentioned. ارتكاب أخف الضررين لدفع أعلاهما. The principle of taking the lesser of the two evils. The principle of taking the lesser of the two evils. If you have two evil things in front of you, and you have no choice, one of them you must end up doing it. Then which one do you do? The lesser of the two evils. Taking the lesser of the two evils. How do we know that? وَذَلِكَ لِأَنَّ الْبَوْلَ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ ضَرَرٌ لَا شَكَّ فِيهِ Because urinating in the masjid isn't that some type of harm, isn't that some type of evil. Of course, it's a type of evil, it's a type of harm, it's a type of wrongdoing. ولكن لو قام الرجل وهو يبول لأدى ذلك إلى تلوث المسجد كله أو قسم كبير منه وهذا مفسدته أكبر ولذلك ترك النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم تركه النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يبول في موضع واحد من المسجد لكي لا تعم لا تعم النجاسة أكثر من موضع so the principle is that if you have two evil things that are happening, or are going to happen, one of them must happen, then you do the lesser of the two evils. Here now, urinating in a corner of the masjid, that's evil. But now, if the person had been stopped in the middle of his urine, and, they, and, and, and people started shouting at him in the middle of his urine, then what would happen? He would be shocked and he would stand up and what would happen? The urine would go everywhere. He would, in the middle of his urine. Imagine somebody is in the toilet and he gets shocked and then you, you move around and then the urine is going to go everywhere. Isn't it? So now this person when he was urinating, he was sitting, he was urinating. If he was disturbed, shocked in the middle of that, he would get up and he would be shocked and the urine would go everywhere. So is that even, even worse? It's even worse because now the urine is going to go everywhere. Whereas initially, at first... He was urinating where? Just in one, one corner, one side of the mosque. He was urinating in one small area. That's evil, to urinate in that one small area. But if you were to stop him in the middle of it, and he would be shocked, then the urine wouldn't just be in that small area, it would go here and here and everywhere then. When he gets up and he's shocked and he stops, wouldn't it? So that second evil, is it more than the first one? It is. That's why the Prophet said to the companions, let him finish. Don't disturb him now, don't tell him off now, don't stop him now, because if you do, then that shock and that when he gets up, then the urine will go everywhere. Even more than just the one place that he was urinating at. So that evil would have been greater. That's why the Prophet said, let him finish, because at least now, at least now it's just in that one area. It's only that one area. And that's why afterwards the Prophet 
They came with some water, he commanded them to come with some water, a bucket of water, and they poured it just in that one area where it urinated. But if they'd stopped him and shocked him in the middle of it, then the urine would have gone everywhere, here, there, everywhere. You would have had to pour water all over the place. So the evil would have been greater if you stopped him in the middle of the urine. That's why the Prophet ﷺ allowed him to continue and to finish, because then at least the urine was restricted to that one area where he was urinating. And that the scholars say is because of the principle, if two evils are going to happen, then take the lesser of them. Take the lesser of them. Here now he was already urinating. So okay, stick to the lesser of the evils. If you stop him now in the middle of it, you're going to end up with a greater evil. That's something that the shaykh mentions also from that hadith. That's the end of that hadith. That hadith, the point of it is, that it tells you what to do if there is urine on the ground somewhere. If there is urine or if there is other impurity on the ground, how do you purify it? Water. By pouring lots of water. By pouring lots of water on it. Pour lots of water on that impurity and it takes it away and that's it. Even if it is hard land or soft land. Even though some of the scholars said if it is solid ground you have to clean it as well. But some of them said it's enough just to pour the water onto it. That's our hadith. That's about purifying the ground if it becomes impure. All of these to tell you the different rulings. In case somebody reads the hadith about the dog and thinks you have to do the same for the ground. So they start pouring seven times and one with dirt and with soil. You don't do that for the ground. For the ground you just pour the water and that water will take away that impurity. And, uh, and when the water does take it away, if you pour some water and the impurity is still there, pour some more water. Keep pouring the water until the impurity disappears. So once you keep pouring and pouring, and when the, urine, uh, the impurity disappears, that is finished. Now it's clean again, it's pure. You can pray on it again. Then the second hadith, hadith of Umar ibn, uh, ibn Umar, radiallahu anhuma, uhillat lana maytatani wa daman. He says, two uh, dead animals that haven't been slaughtered, have been made permissible for us, and two types of blood. What's the transition they give there? Um, two, ty- two types of dead animals. Yeah, two types of blood. No. Two types of dead animals and two types of blood. Yeah. Two types of dead animals, i.e., animals that have not been slaughtered, and two types of blood. And we'll see what the meaning of that is now. And as for the two dead animals that you don't have to slaughter, الحوت, which is the whale or generally the sea. We already said. All of the fish in the sea, you don't have to slaughter them. You can have all of them. Here, hoot, they often refer to it specifically as the whale, but generally fish. What does it say there? Fish, Fish, the seafood. We already said in the first hadith, any type of animal that lives specifically in the sea, then it's permissible to eat even without slaughtering. While jarad, jarad is locusts. Locusts, everybody know what locust is? You know what grasshopper is? Grasshopper, you know what a grasshopper is? They look a bit like grasshoppers, but they can fly. They fly and they look a bit like grasshoppers. They're about the same size as grasshoppers, but they can fly and they're like a brown color. Grasshoppers are normally green. And uh, they're called locusts, that kind of animal. Those are permissible to eat again without slaughtering. You can eat them without slaughtering. And as for the two types of blood which are permissible, these were the words we wanted in English. So what are they? Al-kabid, the liver and the spleen. Spleen. I think we said spleen last time. Huh? 
spleen. <laughs> spleen. <laughs> if you did biology uh, in the school, you know what spleen is. So the liver and the spleen are mentioned. The liver and the spleen, which is another body organ, then those two are permissible. It's mentioned in this hadith. However, the author, Ibn Hajar, he says the hadith, fihi da'af, that there is some weakness in this hadith. Sheikh Fawzan says, the reason why the author says that is because, قَوْلُ الْمُسَنِّفْ فِيهِ ضَعَفْ لِسَبَبٍ فِي ذَلِكَ وَهُوَ أَنَّهُ مِنْ رِوَايَةِ عَبْدِ الرَّحْمَانِ بْنِ زَيْدِ بْنِ أَسْلَمْ عَنْ أَبِيهِ عَنْ إِبْنِ عُمَرْ وَعَبْدِ الرَّحْمَانِ بْنِ زَيْدِ بْنِ أَسْلَمْ مَتْرُوكُ الْحَدِيثِ كَمَا يَقُولُ الْإِمَامُ أَحْمَدٍ فَهَذَا سَبَبُ ضَعْفٍ This hadith, it has been narrated by Abd rahman ibn Zayd ibn Aslam, who narrates it from his father, Zayd ibn Aslam, who narrates it from Ibn Umar. Abd rahman ibn Zayd ibn Aslam, this narrator, he was somebody who they, who they said was matruq al-hadith. You abandon his hadith, abandon his narrations, as Imam Ahmad said. And that's in the sciences of hadith, what it specifically means, matruq al-hadith. But basically that he was weak, that he was not to be accepted. وَلَكِنْ يَشْهَدُ لَهُ أَدِلَّ أُخْرَى مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ وَمِنَ السُنَّةِ However, there are other evidences in the Qur'an and the Sunnah that back up this hadith about these two uh, types of animals that you can eat without slaughtering, the locusts and the fish, and the two types of organs as well. There are other evidences that are mentioned that say it is permissible. There are other evidences that back it up, even if this hadith is weak. As for the fish, like we said, we already have the evidence. The hadith that we mentioned. That it is permissible to eat the animals of the sea. Um... وَأَمَّا الْجَرَادِ فَدَلَّ الْحَدِيثُ صَحِيحُ عَلَى حِلِّهِ As for the jarad, the locusts, then there is an authentic hadith. There is another authentic hadith that proves the permissibility of eating them even without slaughtering. قَالَ إِبْنَ أَبِي أَوْفَى غَزَوْنَا مَعَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم سِتَّ غَزَوَاتٍ أَوْ سَبَعْ غَزَوَاتٍ نَأْكُلُ الْجَرَادِ Hadith which is in Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih muslim Ibn Abi Awfa, he says, we went out in battle with the Prophet ﷺ, six or seven different battles. And whilst we were out in these battles, we used to eat jarad. We used to eat the locusts. We used to eat the locusts, even without slaughtering them. So there's an authentic narration there now, which proves that the eating of the locusts is permissible. Then there are some other things which are mentioned about the hadith, but that in general is sufficient that there are other evidences that support this hadith. أَمَّا قَوْلُهُ أُحِلَّتْ لَنَا مَيْتَتَانِ أُحِلَّتْ التَّحْلِيلِ ضِدُّ التَّحْرِيمِ أُحِلَّتْ لَنَا مَيْتَتَانِ Meaning, these two dead animals have been made permissible for us. Because tahleel... Making something permissible is the opposite of tahreem. Making something impermissible. So halal is the opposite of haram. So here now, the uh, narrator says that these things were made permissible for us. I.e. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them permissible for us and made them allowed for us to have. Maytatan, the dead animal. That is a dead animal that has died without being slaughtered in the proper Islamic manner. 
And we know that normally an animal that has not been slaughtered in the proper manner, is he allowed to eat or not? Not allowed to eat. If an animal dies by itself without the proper slaughtering, then it's not allowed to eat. If a farmer has uh, lots of sheep, and one day he wakes up and one of the sheep has died in the field by itself. It died at night. Can you take that and cut it up and take the meat and eat it? You can't because you didn't slaughter it. So any animal that hasn't been slaughtered Islamically, then it's normally not allowed to eat. But here there are exceptions, two exceptions. The fish in the sea, the fish in the sea, you don't have to slaughter them. And also the locusts. The evidences for the fact that animals normally, if they are not slaughtered, are haram to eat is in the Quran. In Surah Al-Ma'idah, حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَيْتَةُ وَالدَّمُ وَلَحْمُ الْخِنْزِيرِ That the dead animals have been uh, made impermissible for you. حُرِّمَتْ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَيْتَةُ these dead animals that have been slaughtered are made impermissible upon you. Uh, similarly, in another ayah in Surah An-Nahl, ayah number 115, Indeed, Allah has made the dead animal that hasn't been slaughtered haram upon you. So these evidences indicate that an animal that has not been slaughtered in the proper manner, in the Islamic manner, then that is not permissible to eat. However, these are now exceptions to that. But what are the rules then? What is considered to be a proper Islamic slaughtering? How do you know if something's been slaughtered Islamically properly or not? There are certain conditions. Here the Shaykh summarizes them into three small conditions or four conditions. One of them is the person who is doing the slaughtering must be someone who is uh, proper to slaughter. And who is proper to slaughter? A Muslim, a person of Tawheed, or even the people of the book, Christians and Jews. A Muslim or the people of the book. Second condition, the tool that you use to slaughter with, Al-Ala. And takuna Al-Ala taqta'u bihaddiha la bithiqaliha. Wa an takuna min ghayri al-dhufar wal-azam. The second condition is that the knife that you use or the object that you use to cut the animal's neck, then it must be something that cuts the neck of the animal because of the sharpness of it, not because of the weight of it. Imagine you had a blunt stone, a big blunt stone. Blunt is not sharp. But you pushed really hard into the neck of the goat, then what would happen in the end? You'd be able to cut it. You push the stone in, push it, push it, push it. You'd be able to cut the neck. But have you cut the neck because the stone was sharp or because of the weight? Push it, push it, push it. Because of the weight. Now that's haram. You can't slaughter an animal like that. You have to slaughter it because the thing you use is sharp and it cuts. Not because you're pushing it in with the weight. So it has to be something which is sharp and it cuts. But also, it cannot be made from nails or bones. It cannot be made from any type of nails or bones. This thing that you use to cut the neck of the animal. The third condition, so we've got two conditions so far. Must be a Muslim or from the people of the book, the Jews and the Christians. Secondly, the item that you use must be something which is sharp and can cut. Not that you slaughter it because of the weight of that item going into it. And that it must not be from nails or bones. The third condition is... How do you actually cut the animal? And this is what the Shaykh is going to explain now. وَأَنْ يُقْطَعْ مَا أُمِرَ بِقَطْعِهِ That you must cut certain items from the neck. 
there is a certain way to cut the animals for them to be slaughtered properly. And that is Al-Wadajan, Al-Hulqum, or Al-Mar'i, Wal-Wadajan, Arqan, Fi Janibay Al-Arq, Yajri Minhum Ad-Dam, Wal-Hulqum, Majra Al-Nafs. There are four things, Wal-Mar'i, Majra Ta'am wa Sharab. هذه أربعة إذا قطعت كلها فإن هذا ذكاة بإجماع أهل العلم أما إذا قطع بعضها فهذا محل تفصيل عند العلماء والصحيح أنه إذا قطع ثلاثة من هذه الأربع فالذكاة صحيحة There are four main things in the neck of an animal There are four main things There are two big uh, arteries You know arteries and veins Where the blood goes in them there are two big ones in the sides of the neck. Two big arteries and veins where the blood flows. You know the arteries and veins. Everybody know arteries and veins. The blood where it flows, these things you can see. These lines in your hands that you can see where the blood is flowing. These are small ones. But in the neck you have two big ones. There are two big ones in the neck. That's two. There is also the, the esophagus. The one that you breathe from. The tube that your air goes in from. Where you breathe, that's a big one in the neck as well, where you breathe from. That's three altogether now. Two big ones for the blood, one to breathe from, and there is another one that, for what? For food. And there's another big one for food. So there are four big tubes in the neck. There are four big tubes in the neck. Two for the blood, one for the breathing, one for the eating. If you chop all four of these tubes, you cut all four of these tubes then that is the Islamic slaughtering by consensus of the scholars. If you cut the two big blood arteries or veins, and you cut the two big, uh, and you cut the breathing one, and the eating one, you cut all four of them, then that is the Islamic slaughtering by consensus of the scholars. Then there is a bit more discussion with regards to if you cut less than that. But the summary of it is that many of the scholars say, that if you cut at least three out of the four, when you're slaughtering the animal, if you cut at least three out of those four big tubes, then it's okay, it's authentic. That slaughtering is correct. If you were to cut three out of the four, the Shaykh says, uh, For example, somebody cuts the air passage and the food passage and one of the blood veins. One of the blood arteries or capillaries or what the name is, I forgot now. The jugular vein, those ones, the one where the big, big blood is in. If you cut that one and you cut the breathing one and you cut the eating one, then even if you don't cut the other big blood one, as long as you cut the three, then that the scholars, they say, it's enough. Or for example, you cut the two big blood, the jugular veins. You cut the two big blood ones, and then either the eating one, that makes three, that's okay. Or you cut the two big blood veins, or arteries, or jugular veins. And the uh, breathing one, that's okay. As long as you cut three out of the four, takfi. فَهَذِهِ ثَلَاثَ مِنْ أَرْبَعَ وَهِيَ تَكْفِي أَمَّا إِذَا قَطَعَ دُونَ ثَلَاثَ فِيهِ خِلَافٌ أَيْضًا If you cut all four of them, consensus of the scholars, the slaughtering is correct. If you cut three out of four, then generally speaking, yes, again, they say it's correct. But what if you only end up cutting two? 
You cut the animal, but you only end up cutting two of those four things. فَفِيهِ خِلَافٍ Then there's a difference of opinion. فَذَهَبَ شَافِعِيُّ وَأَحْمَدْ فِي رِوَايَةٍ إِلَىٰ أَنَّهُ يُشْتَرَطُ قَطْعُ الْحُلْقُومِ وَالْمَرْئِ They say, Shafi'i, Al-Imam Shafi'i, and Al-Imam Ahmed in one narration said, that if it's only two things that you cut, then it must be the air tube, the esophagus, the air tube, and the breathing tube. It must be those two then. If you're only going to cut two, then you must cut those two. وَلِأَحْمَدْ فِي رِوَايَةِ أُخْرَىٰ And in another narration, Imam Ahmed he said, أَنَّهُ يُشْتَرَةُ مَعَ ذَلِكَ قَطْعُ الْوِجْجَيْنِ وَلَا شَكَّ أَنَّ قَطْعَ الْأَرْبَةِ هُوَ الْأَحْوَضُ وَالْأَكْمَلِ And in another narration, Imam Ahmed said that you must cut the two blood jugular veins also. But the point is, two, cutting two, there's a difference of opinion, and it shouldn't be done that way. If you slaughter, then at least you should cut three of those four. And if you cut all four of them, consensus of the scholars, your slaughtering is authentic. And your slaughtering is correct. So that's what you should do. Cut the two jugular veins, the two big blood veins, cut the breathing tube and the eating tube, cut all four of them, and your slaughtering is uh, authentic by consensus of the scholars. The fourth condition is that you have to mention the name of Allah upon uh, slaughtering. So if these conditions are present, that the right person is doing it, a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, the right type of item is used to cut, not something blunt that you have to push into it, and it's not nails or bones, also, you cut at least three of those four tubes, and if you cut all four of them, then consensus of the scholars that it's uh, correct. And the fourth thing that you must mention the name of Allah upon slaughtering. So, if these four conditions are present, then that slaughtering is permissible to eat. And if they are missing, if all of these conditions are missing, then it is a dead animal which is not permissible to eat by consensus of the scholars. Hmm. So really, those conditions need to be there for the slaughtering to be correct. If some of them are missing, then you're into uh, territory which is dubious. It's a difference of opinion and it's something which is a gray area. So really, you need to slaughter properly. And if any of those conditions are missing, then it's issues that are differed about. So any animal which has not had this type of slaughtering, it's a dead animal which is not allowed to eat. وَهُنَا يَقُولُ أُحِلَّتْ لَنَا مَيْتَتَانِ فَهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ يَكُونُ مُخَصِّسًا لِعُمُومِ تَحْرِيمِ الْمَيْتَةِ So normally you're not allowed to eat animals that haven't been slaughtered properly. But this hadith tells you that there is an exception. The fish in the sea and the locusts are an exception to that rule. That you can eat them without the slaughtering. Uh, then, دَمَان The daman الدَّمَان تَثْنِيَةُ دَمْ وَاللَّهُ تَعَالَى حَرَّمَ الدَّمْ فَقَالْ إِنَّمَا حَرَّمَ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَيْتَةَ وَالدَّمَ وَالْأَحْمَنَ الْخِنْزِيرِ وَظَاهِرُ هَذِي الْآيَةَ يَدُلُّ عَلَى تَحْرِيمِ كُلِّ دَمْ لَكِنْ جَاءَتْ آيَةَ فَخَصَّصَتْ الدَّمْ بِالْمَصْفُوحِ وَهِيَ قَوْلُهُ تَعَالَى إِلَّا أَنْ يَكُونَ مَيْتَةً أَوْ دَمًا مَصْفُوحًا الْمَصْفُوحُ هُوَ الدَّمَ الَّذِي يَشْخَبُ مِنْ أَدْوَ مِنْ أَوْدَاجِ الْمُذْكَاءِ مُذَكَّاءَ وَقْتَ الذَّبْحِ فَهَذَا نَجْسٌ وَحَرَامٌ بِإِجْمَاعِ الْعِلْمِ وَأَمَّا الدَّمَ الْمُتَبَقِّي فِي اللَّحَمْ فَهُوَ مَعْفُونَ عَنْهُ 
لأن صحابة كانوا يأكلون لحم ويضعونه في القدر وفيه بقية دم وكانوا يرون الدم خطوطا في الماء ولم يأمرهم النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بغسله ولا شك بأن إزالة الدم المتبقي فيه فيها عنة ومشقة والله سبحانه وتعالى لم يجعل على المسلمين في دينه من حرج وهذا الحديث استثنى من الدم دمين الدم الأول دم الكبد ودم الثاني دم الطحال فهما مستثنيان من عموم قوله تعالى حرمت عليكم الميتة والدم So normally the blood when you slaughter an animal the blood which flows out of it is that pure or impure that's impure and you're not allowed to eat that that blood which flows out of the animal Adam al-Masfuh that is the blood that pours out of the animal when you slaughter it that blood is typically not allowed to eat but what about some of the blood when you slaughter the animal you get its meat sometimes there's still blood in the meat you see it sometimes there's still bits of blood in there that's okay even the companions they used to cook their meat sometimes and there was bits of blood there and they used to see the traces of the blood in the water etc but that's okay to eat but the blood which flows out of an animal when you slaughter it then that blood is impermissible to eat however here it says that there are two types of blood which are okay so you have one which is the liver and you have one which is the spleen those two organs they have been made exceptions again they have been made exceptions from the normal rule So what are the things that you can understand from this hadith then? Summarize it all now in the end. Firstly, that eating animals that have not been slaughtered properly is haram. It's a meta. And it's not allowed to eat until you've slaughtered it properly. Except fish and locusts. Also, there is an evidence in this hadith. أَنَّ السَّمَكُ وَالْجَرَادِ إِذَا مَاتَ فِي الْمَاءِ فَإِنَّهُ لَا يَتَنَجَّسُ Fish, if they die in the water, or locusts, if they die by themselves, they don't become impure. Obviously, how else are you allowed to eat it? You're allowed to eat it, so that means that they aren't impure. And then the final issue is that there is an evidence about the impermissibility of the blood, which pours out of the animal, and the exception that's given is the liver and the spleen. So they are some of the rulings with regards to that issue. The issue of animals and slaughtering and what's allowed and what's not allowed. Locusts and fish, you don't have to slaughter. If you catch a fish in the sea or in the river, you don't have to slaughter it. You can just cook it and eat it straight away. If you catch a locust, put a big net out and catch lots of locusts, you don't have to take each one and start slaughtering them. You can eat them straight away, cook them and eat them. And in fact, Sheikh Falah, he says, in Kuwait, they eat a lot of locusts. There's locust season. They have locust season where they gather lots of locusts and they eat them. And he mentioned a story. He mentioned a story about a Sudanese person. There was a Sudanese person and they were on Hajj. Sheikh Falah was with the Kuwaiti group. The Kuwaiti group, they were on Hajj. And they were sitting on their bus. They were about to get onto their bus to go to the stoning or to go to Mecca. And the Sudanese person came and he got on their bus. And he said, I want to take a seat. But Sheikh Falah, he said, no, you can't because we have our group, our members of our group, they're, they're coming now, they're on the way. These are their seats, they're reserved. This is the Kuwaiti bus. And the Kuwaiti people from Kuwait, their places are on this bus. 
So they reserved the people coming. So the Sudanese person, he got angry. He said, you're lying. What do you mean? The place is empty. I can see them empty. There's nobody there. Where are the Kuwaitis? There's nobody here. And he thought that they were lying to him. So he got angry at them. And the Shaykh Fala, Shaykh Fala, he's saying, no, no, we're not lying to you. We're telling the truth. There are some people coming now. Our group, from our group, they're coming. They, these are their places. And so this brother, this Sudanese brother, he got angry. He said, you people, you people, all you do, you Kuwaitis, you keep eating the locusts all the time in your country. And he started making some uh, uh, jokes like this about them. Then he went. Because it's known about the people in Kuwait, they eat these locusts. So uh, that's something which is permissible without the slaughtering. And that's the end of those two hadith. And the next time when we start, we'll do the hadith about if a fly, a fly, if it falls in your drink, imagine you have a cup of water and the fly falls into it. What do you do? Is he allowed to drink the water or not? That's what we're going to discuss next time, insha'Allah. And a fly, if it goes into your water, what do you do? What's the ruling about a fly? What's the ruling about that water? What did the Prophet ﷺ say about those things? That's what we'll start next time, insha'Allah.